How do you feed a growing global population with the same amount of land? You grow up. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is GreenSense, where we dive into the latest eco-innovations. Chris Higgins is co-owner of Hort Americas and founder of Urban Ag News, which provides innovative and educational content and horticultural supplies to greenhouses and vertical farmers. Chris, welcome back to GreenSense. Thanks for having me. Happy 2021. And to you, my friend, and hopefully this will be a much more easier year for all of us. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> well, the field of controlled environment agriculture, or CEA as we call it, uh, ranges from simple hoop houses to a complex, touchless robotic farm using LED lights. Um, the field of CEA has exploded in the last several years as uh, Silicon Valley has met agriculture and investments just flowing into the industry. Um, I don't know if you saw this recent article in The Spoon. It headlined, Indoor Farming Got Big in 2020. It lists uh, several multi-million dollar investments uh, and other deals, uh, but it doesn't get into why, it's, why the field of CA and vertical farming is so big. Do you have any theories? So I, I have some theories um, based on my knowledge of The Spoon article. I don't know if my theories are exactly in line with where they were taking the direction of that article, but, you know, CEA is going to continue to grow. I think that, you know, there's a consensus out there that it solves certain problems that we're dealing with immediately, and it's a potential solution for long-term problems um, that we're also dealing with. Um, the immediate solutions and why the money, you know, why some of the farms are being built today especially when you look at a greenhouse, a hoop house, or some of the mid, low to medium tech solutions, including, you know, including pretty advanced greenhouses in that statement, um, are to deal with a couple of things we are challenged with, including legislation around water, as well as leg legislation around increasing uh, the minimum wage and salaries. CEA allows farmers to be more efficient. And in order to, uh, to cope with the rising cost of doing business, they're going to have to find efficiency any way they can. Otherwise, those prices are gonna be passed down to the consumer. And I know all farmers are always afraid to raise the price of their product. Well, there's been a number of companies out there on the vertical farming side that have raised in excess of $250 million and have crazy valuations in the billion dollar range and they haven't hardly sold any product. There's other companies out there in the greenhouse side that uh, are building large greenhouses with nothing special on the technology end and their valuations are in the million. How much of this market's hype? Oh, I think any new market has a degree of hype and uh, you know, a degree of innovation that is gonna to lead to uh, more products and more advancement further down the road. And I think right now they're, you know, a pandemic, anytime we get concerned about, you know, cleanliness, um, we start to think closely about our food. Uh, you guys have to know the same people that I know that during the pandemic, they washed everything in the first few months of the pandemic, whether it was canned goods or produce or whatever, they were washing everything to make sure that they tried to not bring that virus inside the house. Um, you know, a lot of the hype today for me is around that food safety concern. Vertical farms are a good way of controlling the environment in which you're producing food. And as part of that control, you can implement, I'm not saying they all do, but you can implement food safety standards that allow you to 
ensure, in quotations, um, very safe products to the consumer. Well, and probably the best one is your traceability. You could trace it down to your tub or your tray in a vertical farm, which uh, you're not going to get that kind of resolution on big field farms or even some of the bigger greenhouses. Correct. So, yeah. Um, well, I know in our talking in the past, we share a common philosophy when it gets to uh, building uh, CEA facilities that they need to be simple and robust so that they work, you know, consistently with little failure. Um, recently, there's been such an influx of new software, uh, new AI products, uh, artificial intelligence, new robotics. Um, uh, and this is somewhat the antithesis of simple and robust. In yeah. your opinion, what CEA technologies do you see that have real merit out there? Well, the number one thing that has real merit because it's, it's being used in industry, you know, in a variety of industries, and it can be, it can move from a greenhouse to an indoor farm fairly quickly. The advancements in lighting are definitely going to be here to stay. Um, older greenhouses, which again are still see, you know, CEA facilities, have been using very inefficient lighting for years. Uh, because in, in much of the world, assuming that people want their product grown in a controlled environment, year round, locally next to markets where it's impossible to grow out, outside, there's gonna be a need for supplemental light. So the advancements that have been made in vertical farming that have led to increased invest, investments from lighting manufacturers, that's definitely here to say. Um, improvements in some of the software, um, allowing us to work with sensors that had never been thought of before because we never thought we needed them for it. That sensor and data collection technology is here to stay. Now, when we talk about some of the irrigation, you know, the novel irrigation approaches, that's, that's questionable, right? Um, we need to deliver water and nutrients to the, to, the, um, to the plant, but we're probably right now making that a little bit more complex than it, what it needs to be. And as people start, people's farms start to get larger and larger and move past that R&D scale, you'll probably see them going to systems that provide more buffer and less potential chance of failure um, so that they can take time off on the weekend and they don't have to be at the farm every day. Um, that's a good answer. I want to dive into that a little deeper is that uh, you hear a lot of talk about automation. And when people talk about automation, I think everybody conjures up something different. Some picture robots marching through a farm with no people. Others look at your, your seating line being automated or your packing line being automated or your uh, back end of the farm where all the delivery of the inputs are automated with sensors and automation uh, controls on valves. So let's talk a little bit about automation. Where do you see automation uh, technology fitting into the new uh, CEA facility? So for me, this is a really good question. And it, there's, I have two paths that I travel down when having this conversation in industry groups. The first path is we probably won't ever really see the adoption of automation until we see standardization. And, you know, irregardless of how much money has been raised, many of these indoor farms are still fairly small in terms of the volume of produce they can, they, they can put out, right? And so what's gonna, what we're likely to see is a series of companies invest a lot of money in finding ways that they think they can do it well but one or two systems eventually become some sort of standard for the industry. And once those standards are created, 
then you're likely to see automation that builds around there because the industry now has a certain scale that allows for people to truly invest and becoming more and more efficient, thereby bringing the price of the, the produce down and allowing them to build bigger farms and target larger consumer audiences. Let me, ask, let me ask a question while, the, while we're on that. Is uh, the greenhouse industry has been around for 200 years. Is it standardized? For the most part. In, in what way? In, in what way the, 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 the growing systems, you have a choice of one or two systems. It's in now I'm, I'm assuming that we're talking about growing food and we're not talking about growing other crops. Yes. Yeah, if, if you're looking at the, let's say you talk about a greenhouse tomato, which many of your listeners and, and, and much of the audience has probably eaten throughout the course of their life. A greenhouse tomato is going to be grown almost the exact same way in every farm. Now that doesn't mean they're buying the equipment from the exact same supplier, but the way that that farm is orientated, the way that that farm is managed is done in a very similar way. The, 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 the irrigation system is going to be very similar. The layout of the plants are going to be similar. The plant densities in the greenhouse are going to be similar, thereby allowing you to implement automation because the, the, the engineers that are building the automation know what footprint they're building for. Same thing could be said for a greenhouse leafy green production. Now there's two or three different systems that are out there, but those two or three systems now have enough scale where if you're a system designer, you can, get, you can get your investment back by building two, one of those two or three standard systems that most builders are, are putting in their systems now. And, and Chris, when you say standardized, do you mean that there is a codified uh, uh, code in which these are built or that there is a, uh, a practice that everybody adheres to? I'm going to say the latter. It's definitely not a code. It's not something that's written down anywhere or that's, that's governed, um, but it's a standard practice. So if you're growing tomatoes and you're, and you're doing anything over a couple of acres, everybody's going to use a hanging gutter system. And that hanging gutter system, the distance between one plant and the other are essentially going to be the same. If you're growing leafy greens in a greenhouse, you're going to choose, and, and you're of scale, you're going to choose either a floating raft system or a mobile gully system. Those are going to be the two systems you choose to, to grow off of. And I can't think of one greenhouse that's growing leafy greens at scale in another way than that. So once you know that you're growing in a floating raft system, you know that the greenhouse is going to lay out a certain way. You're going to have a certain amount of plants per square foot. You're going to have a certain amount of days from seeding to harvest. And as long as the seeds don't change drastically, you can automate to those standards that have been created in the industry over the last Really, um, when it comes to both of those two systems I just referenced, since the mid '80s, you know, they they started in 1980, 1983, somewhere in there. Um, one of our reoccurring guests, Tom Appel, we've uh, affectionately call him the Guru of Gear. So I'm going to bestow a new title upon you, and that's going to be the Prince of Plants. <laughs> so, uh, Chris, uh, as the new Prince of Plants, uh, I want you to gaze into your crystal ball. Uh, we've had a, almost a full year of COVID lockdown. How has it changed food production and distribution? And this is where the crystal ball comes in. Will it ever go back to pre-COVID conditions or are we living the new normal? So it really hasn't changed production too much in the general sense of the word. It's changed the way we manage people inside of a farm in terms of, of our concern with spreading a virus right? It's changed the way 
It's changed some of the costs that farmers have to deal with in terms of it's more expensive to farm today than it was a year ago because they have implemented new safety standards to protect not only the consumer, but their employees and the crops. That's changed. I don't think, I think that's a permanent change. I don't see us loosening up when it comes to food safety and worker safety standards that have been created. Um, we're still growing the crops in the similar ways. And the distribution side, you know, this is where I'm not an expert, but this is where I think the farms have been hit the hardest, being that there have been big winners and there have been big, big losers like we've spoken about in the past. Um, I hope that, I hope for the sake of people I work with, I hope for the sake of farmers I'm friends with, that the food service industry rebounds. Um, because what the food service industry gave us is it gave us an outlet to be creative. It gave us an outlet to have a customer base that was willing to pay a reasonable and fair price for a special crop, right? Because that, that chef or that high-end restaurant knew how to take that crop and prepare a unique experience for the diner. I think the farmers need the chefs back. I think the chefs need to be back for themselves personally because I know they've taken a hit. And I think the, the consumer, you know, I hear from my friends, um, very middle-class people, they, they, they dream of days when they can have special outings again and feel safe having experiences with which we all enjoyed. And that was gathering around a table to have a delicious meal with people we like or love and, and, and have a memorable evening. I Amen. think for that reason, we want this all to come back to some sort of normalcy on that part of our life. Well, as I mentioned, uh, Tom Appel, our guru of gears, we've also often mentioned how on the racetrack, there's a trickle down effect. A lot of the race technology tr trickles down to commercial cars. And I think the same thing happens with chefs. A lot of the new food ideas come from the chefs and trickle down to the to the grocery store. So I, I concur with you. We, we all wish uh, everybody back uh, to normal there. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, you can see that, just one last comment on that, that trickle-down effect that you mentioned, you can see with the local food movement. I mean, that was definitely something that was started by chefs. They drew attention to the capacity and capabilities of the local farmer, and they gave that local farmer the chance to invest and build a food system that could be that could be used to service that local market year round. Um, and it was done on smaller scale. Those smaller scales don't fit well with going to the grocery store. So I really believe in what you just said on how that translates to new trends and new, new opportunities for farmers and local markets. So Chris, in case you haven't heard, we have a new president and a new administration. Yeah. Uh, what's that mean for CEA? Right now, I, I don't know what it means. Um, you know, I wish I did. TV off and try to keep my head down and work. Um, I, I think I'll, 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 I'll wait to determine how that's going to affect CEA. I don't think initially it's going to have any impact. Um, you know, the one thing that the industries are talking about is labor costs. Um, many states are already moving toward, towards a $15 an hour minimum wage. Uh, many of us that are doing business inside of major city centers, we're already paying a $15 minimum wage to get re re reliable um, and good labor. So I know that there's complaints from certain sides that say we're not going to be able to handle this increase minimum, uh, up to $15 an hour. But from my aspect, you know, from the, the position I have, 
many of us are already dealing with that. And um, that's the only thing that I see today that could have a real impact on, on urban ag, CEA, and really agriculture in general. Well, I'm going to mention something that may have an impact and the administration may be able to impact. So indoor farming isn't always about food. Uh, many states are growing hemp and marijuana indoors, and it's been legal for some time. Uh, so how do you think, uh, where do you think the administration stands on cannabis? And how has cannabis impacted the indoor ag industry? Maybe I tackle that last part easier because that's an easier one to answer. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's been good and bad. I think cannabis has allowed for new technology to make it to the market because it scaled up pretty quickly and the cannabis customer had paid, you know, pretty high prices to get the technology they wanted. So that allowed the industry to scale. I think the indoor farmer has benefited from that. Um, I know that there's a big segment of the cannabis community that doesn't really want federal legalization um, because that kind of opens up the markets and then you're going to be you're going to find very competitive situations that you currently don't have when it's illegal to transfer product between states so i think that this is another space where everybody's watching very carefully to see how it's going to impact their business plans um and 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 that's kind of where i'd stop there because I'm, I'm not well read on on where the cannabis market is going under under the new administration, and you know I think everybody's belief is that they'll at least lighten up some, whether they firmly legalize it or not. I don't think anybody knows. Well, Chris, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and we wish all those restaurant tours and chefs uh, that things uh, return to normal and they're back in business. So uh, thanks for joining us. All right, Robert. Thanks for having me. That's Chris Higgins of Urban Ag News and Hort Americas. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is GreenSense. Subscribe to our podcast at greensensefarms.com. And check out the GreenSense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM, WBBM Chicago.